0: You know, what had happened
1: I was we were fishing with Nick Stanzik doing the show we run up to a spot we drop down and we hook up with a sword immediately and fight this and we get this fish near the boat probably fought him for about an hour beautiful fish I'm looking at there 250, 300 so what a remarkable fish for the show and the hook pulls we go back on that spot no sooner did they hit bottom get we hook up again fight another fish for an hour maybe a little bit over get the fish a little bit farther up but we could see it another beautiful fish we pull the hook said so, man we're just snake bitten it's just bad we go and we do it a third time we hook up now i am fight this fish for two hours okay now keep in mind this is like almost constant fighting and we're finally getting the fish somewhat close to where we think we're going to beat it and i'm standing by my outboards facing out and my buddy carl was running his boat as, the camera, as our camera crew on i see Carl coming around the outboards with the fish angle in that direction. I go, Carl, what are, you, what are you doing? He said, the camera crew, they don't want to see your butts. They said, we got to get in front of you. I said, Carl, we've had bad luck. We pulled the hooks on two swords. That angle, you're going to cut the fish off. I said, back up, go around the bow of my boat, come in that way. The sun will be at your back, and the fish is nowhere near there. You can get all the footage you need. I said, we're already having bad luck. So he backs out, and he, he goes idling around and the last thing that I remember seeing at a corner of my eye was his boat coming around the bow of my boat as he was going to try to get position. I go to crank down, I feel his wake, and it wasn't a bad wake, lapped the side of my boat. But it just so happened as I was going down to take a crank, it, the wake lapped on my boat, bounced it, my feet went up. And next thing you know, I catapulted in the water with the swordfish, and I'm going down. And I remember, since I always had an escape route. I'm a small boat guy. I big game fish, and I knew that sooner or later, with your stand up gear, there's going to be a chance you're going to go overboard. So how do you survive it? And I had these three things in my mind uh, play out. The first thing is when you hit the water, slowly back the drag off on the reel to alleviate the pressure, because some people will freak and not do anything. That sword will pull you down, or they freak and they go into free school and create a big bird's nest, which locks it up, and you still go down. That was number one. I did that. And when I did that, the pressure came off and it came back to the top. The second part of the escape route was to grab the rod, pull to my chest and unclip and swim out of the harness. That's where something went wrong. I'm doing it. I can't feel the rod, but I know I'm stuck to it. You know, I know I free pulled it a good bit. And I said, I got to figure out what's going on. So I grabbed the side of my boat and Nick Stanzik's grabbing me by my shirt and I'm slapping his hand off me because if I go down... Nick Stanzik is 80 pounds soaking wet. If I go down, I'm going to take him with with me, and I'm not going to drown the kid. So I I was thinking to myself, i got one shot here. I have to take a breath, find out what's going on with this rod, and i got to get out of it. Fortunately, Kevin saw what was happening. He jumps off the camera boat, swims over to me. When I had flipped over, the rod somehow twisted around with the... the, uh, The rod itself going between my legs, and I'm out there trying to grab it. I I can't get to it. Kevin gets in there, gets a hand, unclips me. We put the rod back into the boat, and I get back in the boat to fight the fish. But the third part of the escape plan wouldn't work, was to grab your pliers and cut the line. But the pliers were underneath the big stand-up arms that I have. And I'll circle back here in in a second, but I got back up in the boat. And I said, Nick, push that drag down. Is this fish still here? And the fish was still there. So I get back up, get in the harness again, uh, beat beyond comparison and fatigue, fought the fish another half hour, and we'll get alongside the boat. Nick says, you want me to fly gap it? You want me to dart it? I said, kill this thing the fastest way you know how, because I don't know how much I've got left me. And he did, and we brought in, it was a 256-pound swordfish. I'm George Poveromo, and it's the Tom Rowland Podcast.
0: Hey,
2: everybody. Welcome to the show today. Got a great guest for us again today. George Poveromo is a legend in the television business. He's taught millions of people how to fish through his seminars, his national fishing seminars that he's done. Started out with Mark Soson doing those, and now he has them all by himself. He has the George Poveromo's World of Saltwater Fishing, which has been on ESPN, NBC Sports, and now on the Discovery Channel. George is a wealth of knowledge, and he certainly does have a lot of stories. And uh, I really enjoyed hearing some that I had never heard before. Never heard a lot of these stories, and if you're a fan of George Poveromo, chances are you may never have heard these stories either. So stand by for a great conversation and a really entertaining hour and a half with the legend, George Poveromo. All right, George Poveromo, how are you, buddy? <laughs>
1: I'm doing fine this morning. Hope all's going well with you.
2: Yeah, after we after we worked out all of our technical <laughs> issues. <laughs> you got two guys here with AOL addresses, so you know that the technology is probably going to be a be an issue, but after writing notes to one another across Zoom, we figured it out. We got it going.
1: No, no doubt. Just like if the GPS goes down on the boat, all you do is you go to the, the regular compass, like we were used to doing before all the electronics came That's into exactly play.
2: Exactly right. That's exactly right. That's the way to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> so, speaking of that, I mean, George, you're a you're a legend in this world, and uh, <laughs> you have really you've really had a great career. You've been on TV for twenty years. Before that. I mean, I don't. I don't really know your, your story before your television show, so I'm really interested in learning about what you did. But I did some research on uh, online, and there were all kinds of stories about you fishing with your family when you were really young, especially in the Marquesas Keys, which I find very, very interesting. Sure. Some of my home water, but uh, you know, fill fill me in a little bit. How did how did your uh, obsession with fishing get started? It Was with your dad, right, and your family?
1: Absolutely. It all started with my father. He's the one who gets the blame for this uh, crazy addiction <laughs> that I have. And um, my, my dad was a dentist in Bay Harbor Islands, which is you know Miami Beach area. And he had a crazy passion for fishing. He would just love to, to fish. And going back, as far as I can remember, about six years of age, uh, on his way back from work, he would pick me up and he would take me to the seawall in North Biscayne Bay you know, by the broad causeway bridge and they they had a a seawall and they had a little pier and I'd have this little plastic kid's outfit with old tiny hook. He'd bring these little pieces of shrimp and I would catch these little grunts and and snappers that had been all maybe three inches long. And I remember to this day, that little fish, telegraphing through that little rod and the excitement when I would catch this little thing, of course, we let him go. And that's when it really hit me. And, and, and at that point in time, you know, looking back, that's when I think this whole thing is it, it, a lot is genetics, because yeah. from that point on, I was hooked. So when my my dad would fish, he had a 23 foot boat. And uh, when I started getting old enough to go with him, we would go in Biscayne Bay and uh, play around for trout. Uh, he was a little, had reservations about taking me out offshore but then his favorite spot to fish which he had done this religiously for decades was trailer the boat to key west run out to the marquesas and hit the rock piles in the gulf for groupers and snappers and as soon as i was old enough to basically survive those trips he would take me and pretty much it was him who put that bug in me and then growing up you know, I never really did any other sports. There was no other sport that interests me. I, I couldn't wait to get back from school because it's a freshwater canal that was uh, two streets over that I would walk that bank until dinnertime chasing largemouth bass, but all my spare time was pretty much sp- uh, spent on fishing. I did some go-kart racing back in, in the day, but the fishing was the whole big deal. And when my dad finally got tired of it, um, I was 16 at the time, had my driver's license, was able to trailer the family boat, And then pretty much when I got the driver's license and family boat, it just spiraled out of control from there.
2: Yeah. So tell me about the Marquesas. Like you said you were going out there when you were six years old. Is that right?
1: Yeah. The Marquesas, he probably started bringing me there when I was around eight years old. We fished a lot of local because I was too young. And back then, you know, it it wasn't like it is today where we have these fast boats and and fuel capacities where, you know, back then you'd run 28 miles west to Key West. That was a long trip. And so in a lot of cases, what he would do would leave early in the morning, run out there. We hit the rock piles all day. Then he would anchor up at night, cook some of the fish that we caught and then go night fishing come back in, anchor up and the next morning and pretty much most of the day we would fish and then drive back with the boat to Key West. It wasn't feasible based on the low speeds and limited fuel to be able to run back and forth each day like like we've had been right, doing for nice. a long time now. But his whole thing is, is mutton snapper and grouper, primarily mutton snapper, that was his favorite fish and he would hit those rock piles. And, and to him, there's only two fish in the world that existed, mm-hmm. mutton snapper and grouper. And then, me having done so much bottom fishing, I'm more of an offshore person. And I remember uh, later on we'd have arguments when I would talk them into going offshore fishing. I don't want to go out there and troll, it's boring. Let's drop for grouper and snapper. We'd have these friendly arguments. And and most of the time I would win. But, you know, if something didn't eat offshore in about an hour, then I started hearing, come on, let's get back on the reef, drop down, maybe try to get a mutton or grouper. So it was a big conflict between offshore in bottom fishing, but the Marquesas, by far his favorite spot. And I can tell you, I had been there so many times since I was a young kid with him through my early 20s that it got to the point when I would hear him talk, hey, what are thinking about one of the Marquesas this week? And I would shudder when I hear the Marquesas, So oh, here we go again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's an interesting place for somebody, you know, I mean, you're like in the Miami area, that's a long way to go. And back then there would have been so much other great fishing right there in Miami. Why, why, why was his, or how did he even find out about that? It seems like a really long way to go.
1: It is. And it was a, uh, a fact of a gentleman by the name of Bob Colvin. Uh, My dad was a dentist, as I mentioned, and Bob Colvin sold dental supplies and early on in my dad's career, they become close friends. And Bob Colvin was the one that really, Supercharged him when it started to come to fishing. And then Bob Colvin was the one who said, Hey, you you ever fished the Marquesas? And my dad said, Oh, what are they? And he says, Come on, we got to take our boats. Let's go down there because Bob had lived in Homestead and that was his favorite area. So Bob Colvin was the one who introduced my dad to the Marquesas. And then my dad fell in love with the place because it was a, a spot that you could drop down with light tackle or anything, and you're always getting strikes. There's a lot of undersized fish there, as you well know, but there's some beauties to be had as well. And it was him who got my dad interested in there, and then that was my dad's favorite place. And I remember in 1979, uh, we bought our first uh, – we, we actually upgraded to from a 23-maker to a 25. And I wanted to go to Bimini. I said, you know, let's go to Bimini. And so we had run over to Bimini. My dad got tired of that like real fast. Come on, let's put this boat on the trailer and, and, and head, head to the Marquesas after this Bimini trip. So it's uh, but he, he fell in love with the place and I, I still love it. And, and because it's such a uh, like a family history there that I try to at least get down there once a year. To, to fish because it's a special place and, and the memories are just so rich. Every time you come by that area, you your mind just goes back to all those yeah. wonderful times that you had. It's it's just a very special place. Isn't
2: that something like the way that a place will do that to you? And it doesn't, I mean, you know, I could go back to, you know, a little pond I fished with my dad in, in Tennessee and the same thing would happen, but I could go to another one and I wouldn't get those, those memories. It's like, like geographical place kind of does that to you sometimes.
1: It does, and it, uh, it just gets you hooked, and, uh, but uh, it is a special place, and I think my father was the first unofficial mayor of the Marquesas out there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you remember stilt houses being out there? I've heard that there were stilt houses there, and people have told me. They've even shown me like where, where the, uh, the, um, the base was, kind of like the Ernest Hemingway House off Cottrell. You know, I heard there were other places out there in the Marquesas. Do you remember anything like that?
1: I I do not. I don't remember anything you know related to still houses that I don't. Yeah, but but I could tell you some of the things that I do remember. Like I mentioned, we would anchor overnight, and then in the morning, you know, you wake up and you you, you fry some eggs on a Bunsen burner or whatever we had back then. And a, a couple of times, I guess this had to been May. You would know this better than anybody. Uh, it, I woke up like super early. I heard all this water <laughs> splash noise. I look out there to could be thousands of tarpon just migrating past us where we were anchored. I'm throwing everything in the world can't even get them to look at it. It, it was like uh, unreal. Was that would that have been made?
2: Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. And you were probably <laughs> you were probably right on the northeast corner, and they and they were just pouring by. But you could have been really anchored up anywhere. I mean, the the tarpon there's there's every spot out there is a pretty good spot. You know, on some tide, and uh, but that that area. Would you see anyone else out there? Any other boats, commercial boats,
1: anything? <laughs> The commercial boats you would see it, it naturally when in lobster season, you'd see the lobster boats out there. But um, every great once in a while, you'd see a commercial fishing boat. I don't know whether they're going for yellowtails or what. They would come in there and anchor for the night. But uh, pretty much back in that time frame, it, it was a, a remote place. I mean, if you saw another recreational boat out there, that was like really an odd sighting because it, it was that that back then was you know the wild wild west and pretty much uncharted frontier going that far back in time.
2: I mean, I would think for sure it was the wild wild west. I mean, even I mean even in the 70s it was it was the wild wild it's west. Right. The 80s. I mean, that, because what you're talking about like the boats, we did not have the boats that we do today. We did not have the engines, the the fuel economy. Like that was that was a long way to go. And then you hear like Ralph Delf talking about um, you know, the stories that I used to hear about him finding the wrecks out there and just finding them by, by the Cobia, you would just run and then you would just see Cobia's floating and he'd be like, okay, this seems like a pretty good spot.
1: Oh, <laughs> it, it's, it's amazing how they did that well before, you know, Loran and, 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 especially, you know, GPS, but Loran, how they would just run that stopwatch and, and that Bob Calden gentleman I told you about who was a buddy of my father's was from that old school era where he would do the uh, timing deal to get out to a lot of those spots off the keys. Yeah. Well, uh, well,
2: a lot of the young listeners will not understand what you're talking about. Explain, explain that so that, so that people understand exactly how that works and how it worked only with your boat. Like you had to do it with your RPMs on your boat. (laughs)
1: You you did. And I remember what we had to do before we had gone down to the keys with Bob call when he said, go to government cut Miami. They have that measured mile that you can run. Get, figure out what RPMs and what speeds you're running. So, what it was, it was based on your particular boat at a certain RPM at a certain speed. And you would have a certain time frame on a certain heading that would tell you, here's where this wreck lies. So, it was a combination of the speed and running that time on a certain heading. And, and in a lot of the situations when you would get near a wreck, back then you had nowhere near the pressure that we see today, you would see. Life come up. You'd see cooters near the top. You would see turtles pop up. So even if you were a few hundred, four or five, six hundred feet off, you could tell where the wreck was just by the amount of life that was concentrating in that one area. So then you would circle over, and you had the old paper graph machine, and uh, you start marking. And here we are. It was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. speed over ground versus time. But then again, you had the advantage of unpressured waters to where a lot of this life also gave itself up and, and told you there's a good piece of structure onto you there too.
2: Right. That's just, you know, and then you, then you start factoring in like, what if it's blowing 20, uh, instead of being slick calm. Yeah. And then, then, I mean, I'm sure there are so many days where you would just, you know, like just not find anything. It's like, well, we're, we can't run the same speed that we ran that government cut because of the wind or the <laughs> waves or whatever. And, or maybe we have too many people in the boat or it's loaded down too much. And so like, we're not even close. So
1: you had to take in in case of that you would have to know what your different speeds were and then what to a lot versus the extra time. If you were to run slower, how much more time you would have to take on the clock to try to get you in that that area. And and, and telling you back then, you had to have somebody who was really brilliant in math to, to figure a lot of that stuff out. and Right. Uh, and, and then don't bother them. Brilliant.
2: And, huh? don't, and then don't bother them while they're driving because, I mean, no, if that, you, if you a, took your, your, yeah. your mind off of what you were doing, then it's all lost. Because if you took, I mean, how long have we been five degrees off of our, our heading? Like, if you're talking like you would do today, that, you would end up in the middle of nowhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it, so, so when you were in that zone... You know, whoever it was that was actually running the boat that time was like the most unsociable person until he actually got out <laughs> to the area right. and found it. Then he could unwind and relax. And then from that point, going back was right. a little bit better because at one point you're going to hit land somewhere. So but, but it was more critical to get to that spot and it was wrecks than uh, anything else. And also going, you know, way back to what I can remember, I'm, I'm going back now, maybe eight, nine years old. Like a lot of times how they would find those better rock piles in the Gulf is they would just drift over areas and it'd have like a like a like a lead stick or a sinker and it would drop it down and lift it and drag and you could tell if you're coming over hard bottom by the dents in that sinker so if you're dropping it down and you're hitting sand you're not going to get those dents but you go down and and you start hitting the harder bottom number one you're going to feel the difference between sand and the rocks and then you reel it up and you could see the dents okay here's a rock pile let's throw the anchor on this and start fishing so this is going, I mean, what, like I said, I was like eight years old back then, and this is before the equipment that we have today. Now you put in, you know, these charts and you can just see every single thing in the yeah, world and just go for it, you know?
2: Yeah. What do you think was the the first major um, technological advance that made it easier for well, you and your dad to like find these places. And like the first thing going from that paper chart, I mean that paper, I remember my grandfather having one of those Lawrence paper charts and man, I mean, it was real paper. Like if water got on it, it was messed up. You know, nothing was waterproof back then. Like there were major, major uh, issues with that. But I wonder if you can think about like the first thing that made, made it so much easier.
1: It would have to be like a combination. It was when Loran sea came to the recreational anglers as one of your nav aids. it would be that, and also the quality fish finders to where you could be drifting or running over an area and actually see a good representation of what's on that bottom. I would say those two were really the breakthroughs and everything else followed in place as far as the reliability of, of, of the outpours and the power, as you know, per that particular time frame, then, uh, boat companies were start to put some more fuel in the boats. And, uh, so it's a combination, but if you had to go early on, it, I would have to say it was definitely Laurency and, and, and then the, uh, the fish finders that, that opened up a lot of that because then, you know, the guesswork was pretty much taken out of that. You had, you could look at charts and figure out where you wanted to go based on the coordinates and and that. So that, that that's what I would have to say.
2: And then when yeah. you found something, you had a reasonable chance of finding it again, you know, with a with yes. a number. Now you had this a Loran number. Um, that seems like that would be a big deal instead of kind of like, okay, like if you went to a wreck or you tried to go to a wreck and maybe you missed it, but then you found another one, which you could easily do in the quicksands area of the Marquesas or or another sure. area. So now you're like, okay, this has been great fishing. So now we got to make our way back to Boca Grande or wherever that we're trying to go to. And how are we going to try to find this place again? Like now you kind of found it on accident. That would be tricky. Like when before yeah. Loran, but then once you had Loran, you could at least assign some sort of a number to it and get you real close to the same.
1: A- absolutely.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's fascinating. i tell you, I mean, and then, then just learning all this stuff and probably navigating with, without, uh, certainly, without any GPS, but also in the dark, you know, mm-hmm. because you had to leave so early because the boats were slow. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. that's that's pretty tricky. I mean, I was, I think I was fortunate enough to to kind of learn how to navigate before the GPS, because you know today it's a it's a different deal. I mean, it's like playing a video game almost. You just yeah. just follow along, and uh, and you can you can pretty much go anywhere. But back then, it was easy to make a mistake. Very easy.
1: Oh, I, I know. And you and you just look at all the the advances we have today, and you just wonder how these fish even have a shot anymore. <laughs> it's like, wow, there's there's a, there's a lot going against them. You know, thank goodness we have some decent conservation measures in place.
2: Right, that's something else you've been really involved with the CCA. How long have you been involved with them?
1: A long time, going you know way back since I could remember. And one, I'll give you a, a little lesser known fact uh, about me, which ties in with Daryl Lawrence, you know, founder of Lawrence of Electronics and all, is when I graduated college, graduated 1981, University of Miami, and I had gone to work with saltwater sportsmen a couple years later. But from 81 to 1984, I was hired on to run the Greater Miami Billfish Tournament. They had started a, a, a Miami Sailfish Tournament that would run as a triple crown event with the Fort Lauderdale Billfish Tournament and, and then the Palpatine Beach Fishing Rodeo. Now, the problem back then, these were all kill tournaments. So in that month-and-a-half frame, when all three would run, there'd be three 400 you know, sailfish killed amongst the three tournaments, which was horrendous. So I had come on board and ran it the first year in trying to convince the board we needed to turn this around to a release tournament. And he had all the old school captains are more selfish, you know, we're not going to do it. And he fought me every step of the way. I was very close with Daryl Lawrence uh, because Daryl had fished the make owner tournaments, the outdoor rider tournaments. And, uh, he, you know, he got involved with a lot of that. So I had known him and he, he took a, a, a very good liking to me and we became you know very good friends. And he was the major sponsor of the Miami Billfish Tournament back then. And so finally, we want to make this a release, and the board shoots me down. So I called Daryl. said, Daryl, I know you're a sponsor and you committed, but I said, I, I have to ask you this. Would you back me and let's call the bluff at the tournament? And I told him, because Daryl's a big conservationist, I said, we need to make this a release tournament. They're killing these sales. It's bad. You're a major sponsor. I said, I need your help. I know you're committed, but I want you to back me up. I'm going to go to the next meeting and saying." Daryl O'Reilly says they're going to pull the major sponsorship if we don't become a released tournament. And he says, you got my back in 100%. And so the next meeting came up, and I said that, and they screamed, you can't do that. And I just said, hey, people, look, let me know. Do we have a tournament or we don't? As you all know, he's the major sponsor. Without him, we're done. Let me know, and I'll wrap up tonight, and, and we'll go home. Or are we going to give, make this a go? And they begrudgingly said, well, we've got to do it. And so we became a release tournament, you know, where the winners had to be polygraphed. And the next event that we did by uh, just ironically was the lowest number of sailfish ever caught. You know, (laughs) people think we're going to go rampant and cheat and all that. And what had happened because of that, the pressure went on Fort Lauderdale and the Pompano Beach Rodeo. Fort Lauderdale had converted to a release deal and then Pompano converted to a, a partial release deal or at one point, they ended up doing away with bringing these billfish in. So because of the little bluff that Daryl Lawrence bat me up on, we converted that whole scene in South Florida sailfish tournaments to all release. And subsequently, all these other events, sailfish release, I mean, events had to be all release. So that was a little lesser known fact. I was the director of the Greater Miami Billfish Tournament back then. And because of Daryl t- tag team, me, we, we changed the whole face of kill selfish tournaments at a South. Wow.
2: That's super cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. I certainly didn't know the tie in with uh, Daryl Uh He was probably very um, influential in the catcher release bass scene as well. Right?
1: Yeah. A big conservationist all the way around. He, he always practiced conservation everywhere and then preached it. And what was uh, funny about that and you know, in my saltwater sportsman years and, uh, the writer tournaments, this and that, when I decided to go out with a television series and you know, I talked to him, said, Daryl, I said, just to let you know, I'm going to shoot a pilot. And I said, if it's picked up, I said, don't spend that advertising money. Cause I'm going to call you up. <laughs> and he goes, all right, George, you, you, get on the, on the national network. We'll be there. And sure enough, we got, got on our first year ESPN, uh, to pick this up. I called Daryl. Hey, Daryl. Guess what? I hope you didn't spend all that advertising money. I'm on. He goes, Did you get there? Yeah. And he says, What do you need to do this? And I told him, He goes, I'll call my uh, advertising people tomorrow. And he says, Send a contract. And he he signed off and he's been my television sponsor, even pretty much through now, because then, um, you know, uh, Lawrence got acquired by Navico, which is a Simrad. And in between this, since I was more an offshore guy, they segued me to the Simrad brand. And so really, that whole Daryl Lawrence relationship still lives to this day because of that whole deal. But I, I was that close to him. Where I told him, I said, don't spend that advertising money. If I get a show, I'm calling you. And true to form, he, you know, he, he was right there.
2: That's super cool. Um, so what was the well, before I find out about how the television show started, what was the what was the major um complaint about going to the kill, I mean, to away from the kill tournaments to the release tournaments, did people think that you were going to cheat or, or people would sure. cheat or
1: cheating? People could make things up and they had to have it structured. And we had an incident and in not the first year, but the second year uh, where the attorneys who wrote the rules up, the stipulation, not only did you have to release the most selfish to win, but you also had to pass the polygraph exam to the satisfaction of the board of directors. So there was really two hurdles you had to do. So first year, it was remarkable. Uh, the second year in the fall event, Lauderdale had an issue with a, a captain and they warned us. And so we were always in April with our tournament. And they said, this captain's coming in the tournament and he cheated and this and that. And I said, well, why did you let him win? Well, we are afraid of getting sued, this and that. I said, well, that's a stupid thing. You're, you're defeating the purpose. Anyway, the guy fudged it big time
2: hmm.
1: in the billfish tournament. So we pulled him off and his son off and the mate. And we had gone into the room with the polygraph examiner and they took, they examined each one of these individuals separately. And we would sit in there and watch it. And, you know, I was never one even, I don't know how accurate a polygraph exam was, or was I ever took one in my life, but I watched the questions they asked. And every time that meeting would spike up, and then down and down and and then they finally laid. They they tried. They did the captain twice, and then he did the captain's son, and he did the person who was part of the team. They laid all four of these exams alongside each other and said, "Here are the questions." And every single one spiked. When yeah. and and so finally, we called them in. The captain said, "Okay, here's the deal. You you're not going to win this. You cheated, and it's obvious right here. We're going to disqualify you." we can let you out easy and saying uh, there's a technical mishap when one of your reporting deal, we'll let you slide out without the embarrassment. And he said, no way. And he said, we're going to sue you. This it's fine. I said, we had attorneys on the board of directors. They said they would take up the cause. I said, you sign this deal. And he fought. And I remember Harry Vernon was sitting in there and he was threatening Harry Vernon. And um, it, it got ugly. This is the game Bay Marriott, but we stood our grounds and said, that's it. They said, we're going to, you know, go ahead and and, and and disqualify you. So the Miami Herald was there. And said, so, so what happened? So we disqualified him because they failed the polygraph exam. Well, the person they were fishing with comes back in and gentleman crying to me. I'm sorry, they made me do this. They made me do this. Please stop this bad publicity. I work for Florida Power and Light. I, I can't afford to lose my job over this. So well, you should have thought of that before you pulled this stunt. And anyway, it was in there, their names. This guy worked for Florida Power and Light. And it just so happened that the guy who was caught worked at the FPL lot or division that one of my close friends worked at. So he called me up. He says, my God, this is after the tournament. When this guy, he pulls his truck in the lot and they get on the big Florida power trucks to go and they come back in. People were taking these stucco poles and taping fake outriggers on his <laughs> mirrors and, and putting a fake box liar. And, and I was, he took a beating for that one. But we upheld it, and then we barred this individual on his boat for life who was caught blatantly cheating. And then um, that, that was the big deal was was the cheating aspect, but we had safeguards. And one of my arguments, and to this day is, well, if you have a kill tournament, let's just say you have dolphin kingfish walk, non-billfish. People bring him in. Who's to say, Tom, you're, you and I, we got a connection here. You're 20 miles off Miami. I'm 25 miles off Fort Lauderdale. You get a thirty-pound dolphin. I got two, you know, nice dolphin here, and say so we got a third buddy who's got a big king, and we all have a point to meet up, and for all these fish in one boat. Just because you pull to the dock and offload these fish, people assume that you caught them, and that may not be true. And see, there's an easier way to cheat in events like that than actually having to go in front of a polygraph exam. My personal opinion.
3: They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today.
2: Yeah, for sure. And today, like now you can do it with video and all this other stuff uh, and, and and digital photography, which is instantaneous. But back then, like even if you gave them cameras, which was almost an impossibility because cameras were expensive and there weren't such sure. things as digital I mean as uh, as disposable cameras probably right then it would even take a long time to develop the film so that makes that you know useless as well so that's interesting so what was what were what was to gain why would someone Go through all of those measures to cheat. What, how much money was were we talking about?
1: I remember back then. I think our top prize was like ten grand cash. Well, that's um, that's so real it was a pretty money. pretty healthy paycheck. And um, you know, it, it, and, and that individual had cheated the fourth Lauderdale tournament. I don't know what they paid him up there. It could have been five, six, seven grand, or uh, I'm not sure. But you know, you win all the the the, the classes in a Miami built tournament. It's got to be worth at least ten grand, if not more than that.
2: Right. So that. It's a good thing that that didn't bring those the you know the tournament down like the idea of the of the release tournament and cuz other tournaments could at that point have said well it's not working look somebody's cheated in two of these we're going back to the kill you know um, which you're you're saying that you kind of rallied against for for the reasons that you sure. just gave us but did was there any any kind of uh, a backlash on that did any of the tournaments
1: No that whole incident uh, the fact that the first time we did that, we had the lowest catch rate in Miami Bills tournament history at that time, and the second time when we were challenged, we stood up to it and uh won and, and blew them out. So, I think that strengthened the whole deal, and, and everything pretty much was falling into place, and people feel more comfortable with that style of tournament going yep. the uh, the release.
2: Well, that you know, that causes everything, causes ripple effects, you know, but that. That, you know, doing something like that in a big game fishing tournament, like a sailfish tournament, that certainly has ripple effects that, that would go straight into tarpon tournaments and, and bonefish tournaments and the red bone and things like that. Um, and you know, the tarpon tournaments, they were kill tournaments for a long time. They, they, people did not want that to go away either. Um, but it did finally. And, um, and, and probably for a really good, good reason. I mean, it has to be that way.
1: And there was another twist that, that showed you how many legs the, 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 the sailfish kill tournament had. Now they justified it in a lot of cases. They would take the sailfish, have it smoked, and distribute it to needy people. But I never knew, and the board really never knew, just how much of that actually had gotten to needy people. Back then, there was a big black market for sailfish. And it was natural. It was illegal. You couldn't sell it but a huge black market existed where a lot of these big name captains uh, would take these sales and after hours sell them for issue. I remember back then you were getting $2, $2, 50 cents a pound for the whole fish to smoke houses. And they would sell that as smoked fish and just distribute that. So, you know, Miami built this tournament had one uh, major collector of all that that was in charge. And so, um, you know, I'm not so sure how much of that actually went to need people and how much of that went on the black market line, somebody else's pocket, you know,
2: it's like a a Carl Hiaasen novel. (laughs) It seems like like there's this all this (laughs) dirty underworld of something that seems so seems so kind of on the surface seems so, you know, naive and and kind of just a you're you're just going out for a fishing tournament but then you got people exactly. trying to cheat and then there's a black market that's a that's a pretty interesting story just,
1: just remember we're in south florida <laughs>
2: yeah anything can happen in south florida that's for sure um, it
0: usually does
2: <laughs> yeah so you kind of alluded to how the the tv show started and you had a good relationship with daryl or Lance. but what yes ha, were you already working at saltwater sportsman at this yes. point so
1: that a- was kind of absolutely. your I, I,
2: that was kind of your 90. ramp
1: ramp up Yep, 1983, I came aboard with Saltwater Sports, and I'm still there. I, uh, I penned their Tackle and Tactics column, write several features a year, so I've been with them since 1983. And in 1983, um, we started uh, – actually, I came aboard 83, and in 1987, Mark Sosen and I had these discussions about coming out with a national seminar series hmm. tour, and how that came into being – uh, our Saltwater Sportsman National Seminar Series, which enters in the year thirty-four this coming January, how that came into being was at the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show each October or early November. Uh, Saltwater Sportsmen would call us, "Hey George, hey Mark, and a couple other riders, uh, we want you to do these little clinics for the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show because the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show talks Saltwater Sportsmen, and hey, you know, you do the clinics. So it was the most embarrassing thing in the world. <laughs> we would go to the Lauderdale Boat Show. And it had the stage. It was by the food court. So you would walk up on stage. They announced that Mark Soson was coming up at, at uh, seven at night. Uh, I was coming on at five in the afternoon. We would go up there and give a half hour clinic. And you'd look out there, and it'd be half a dozen people just sitting there, not to hear you, but to eat the hot dog or the hamburger. They just had the food concession. And this would happen to the point where Sosa and I would talk, this is embarrassing in a saltwater sportsman name, let alone our names. So after a few years of that, we told Rip Cunningham, hey, Rip, we got to stop it. This is an embarrassment. The only people who are attracting are people who want to eat need a seat. And after that, boom, they're gone. I said, the mentality is different at a boat show. People are there to eat a sandwich, drink a beer, walk around and look at boats during a moving mode. It's not a seminar mode where you need people to sit down with their minds open, ready to learn. Two different animals here. So Mark and I came up with this idea about doing a national tour and taking it around the country. Get saltwater sportsmen to, to back this. So we put everything together. Daryl Lawrence was, was first to jump on that as well. And go figure. And um, we had a good lineup of sponsors. We still do. So 1988, we hit the road with the Saltwater Sportsman National Seminar Series, and it was a hit right out of the box. We're packing auditoriums, all day seminar on a Saturday. And I had done that. We'll still do it. It's like I said, year 34 will be coming up um, in in 2021. But about 20 years earlier from today, I'm thinking, what's my next logical career move? I'm with Saltwater Sportsman. It's the number one saltwater fishing publication out there. We have the seminar series. Mark Sosin did 10 years of that, and then he dropped out. and, And I took it from there. He and I were equal partners. The first 10 years of the tour. And then he retired from it. And I took it and have the whole thing as they do now. I said my next logical career move would be to come out with a television show, but a national one. I didn't want to do something on a local level. And it was hard for me to even watch television shows back then because I thought it was insulting that a sport of fishing, two guys in a boat, hey there, Jerry. That's a beautiful fish. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Look, man, look how clean that fish is. Yeah, she's a beauty. There they go. And they do it. And it's the same old thing. I said, this is almost like mine rock. I said, let I came out with a show concept, that pattern of seminar series in a way, in that with my connection to saltwater sportsmen, I had the opportunity to travel abroad a lot and write features. And I said, my show, I could easily travel to great international destinations, but for the average, saltwater recreational angler going to say venezuela for white marlin outing might be a dream trip once in a lifetime if he was able to even do that so i said let me go after the backbone of the saltwater recreational market the anglers who fish saltwater in these 17 foot boats on up to 45 47 foot boats which is the backbone and that's where i had come out with the show concept the focus on coastal u.s uh, we Every now and then we'll do a show abroad, but Coastal U.S. targeting that uh, saltwater market from uh, the inshore saltwater nearshore to offshore, which would hit the majority of a recreational market. And where you make an entertaining show, but you're also fishing, you're talking technicalities, you're showing how you're doing it. So if you were doing a dolphin show, say at Island Marotta, somebody from up in Virginia who dolphin fishes well, they're not fishing our same waters, but look at the techniques that they're using here. I'm going to try to adapt that up in here. And of course, we moved the show being national. We shot our show everywhere from Maine, every coastal state, all around through uh, Texas, and then um, Alaska as well. So that was a very big hit, that show concept that we were doing right there. So it uh, worked out real, real nicely for us.
2: So did that debut on ESPN?
1: It did. We had sent two. Uh, um, VHS tapes out it, because back then the networks wouldn't talk to you. They wanted to see right. if you were up to their standards. So back then it was ESPN and the national network TNN. I sent two packages out simultaneously. I got a call a week later from ESPN saying we have a time slot. Somebody dropped out of our new uh, ESPN two at the seven a.m. Would you be interested in taking that over? I said absolutely. So we flew to Connecticut. And worked our deal, so we had gone with ESPN for the first ten years of our television series, and ESPN waited to get everybody where the contract ended on the same, same time frame, and then they did away with their outdoors. I know, and what it, <laughs> it, it yeah, and then and I'll tell you why. But and then right after that, is three days later, we got picked up by Versus, which was NBC Sports. So we ran nine years at NBC Sports till. About a year and a half ago, they said the same thing. We're getting out of all the outdoors. So I called up, um, you know, my team and said, all right, guys, looks like we're going to fish uh, for fun coming up because, we're, you know, <laughs> I said, we're done. And this was year 19. I said, I've got to get my 20 year anniversary you know, series. In. And and through a connection, a very good connection I had ESPN, who had connections over at Discovery. Uh, two weeks later, we ended up over at Discovery. And that's where we celebrated our 20 year anniversary on television. And that's what we're locked in to do 2021. So our ongoing joke is, you know, we wore out ESPN to the major network. We were out NBC sports. So we'll go over there and wear them out too.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a very similar path that we were on. We, uh, we did our first season on the outdoor channel and we're rich and I were both still guiding at the time. And, we were so proud of this show and and but the outdoor channel was so small. And the first year we had just done this show, put our heart and soul into it. And every client that got on the boat, I would say, Have you seen the show? And they would say, Uh, no, not not yet. Not yet. Uh, what's it on? And I'd say the outdoor channel, and they'd say, Oh, I get that. And and they that was when it we used to be outdoor life instead of versus, right? The outdoor yes. life channel. Well. And uh, then it changed to Versus, which then changed to NBC Sports. And I would say, no, it's not that one. It's the one with a moose logo. And they would say, moose? No, I've never seen that. And I just kept asking everybody, and they just said, no, never seen that. No, never seen that. I don't get that channel. Even my dad, he's like, how do I see the show? And he was going to have to get Dish Network or some sort of Dish. He had too many trees around his house. He couldn't even get it. I said, we got to do something about this. And then the next year, we we had a show on. Uh, OLN, Outdoor Life Network, yep. which turned to Versus. That was the, where the full length show was. But we also had a two minute show on ESPN right there, probably yeah. between your show and somebody else's. You know, we had those little vignette shows. And I remember. It was fantastic. That was a, such a great network, both of those. I mean, the ratings on both of those networks were just astronomical. So on a weekend, we would do just huge ratings. And mm-hmm. then that all changed. But then, you know, the same thing, ESPN decided we're not doing this anymore. Then, then <laughs> OLN changes to versus and then versus changes to NBC. And then NBC says, we're not doing this anymore. And then we find ourselves on discovery channel with a few other things going on too. But uh, yeah, you've had a, you've had a crazy career there with all the the different TV networks. Where do you see, where do you see that going? Do you think?
1: uh well we're gonna run like i said we, we have a history of wearing networks out so we're <laughs> gonna run discovery uh the rating's been super there so we're gonna run discovery and um uh, you know see where it goes from there we um uh, second-handedly you know more of our sponsors than anything else is uh we'll, we'll put our episodes over on my youtube channel george for rumble tv so if somebody happened to miss our first and second quarter airing of discovery they, they could go over there and watch it in 4k broadcast and um You know, pretty much just uh, keep on trucking in that direction and, uh, you know, circling back. Here's an ironic story, which was the first year. I always remember this. And it was our first episode we aired on ESPN2. And it was a Sunday. We were airing Sunday. It was a Sunday to Daytona 500 that was running that Sunday. I got a call on Tuesday from the programming person at ESPN. Called me up He says, George, you said, we got to tell you something here. He said, Your show on Sunday had 580 some thousand household viewers. It was the number one watch show in the entire ESPN block. Wow. Until Dale Earnhardt got killed. That was the day Dale Earnhardt died. And of course, after he died, he took the top ratings over there, which I remember that. I said, Wow. I said, Here we are running away with it. You know, Dale Earnhardt even beat us on that one. You know, (laughs) he took the he took the top ratings that day because unfortunately that was when um, he had died in the crash. Yeah. But uh, that was, I still just remember that call, you know, that day.
2: That's incredible. I mean, yeah. you know, they, and, and, and I often wonder like, why do you think that that women's soccer in Australia is going to outrate what we've been doing on ESPN well, I'll, I'll tell for all you these what. years?
1: I'll tell you the exact reason why. And uh, you, you may know this is my insight sources at ESPN told me what had happened. ESPN had a very successful outdoor blog. Majority of the shows were all time buys. Therefore, they knew how much time they were giving out and they knew what their income was. And, and they were the beast. You know, everybody wanted to be there. So what had happened, they started getting a little on the cocky side. They would get all these videos in from different shows and they would like a just not be concept They said, okay, we like that, but we we'll, they'll go to producer. We want to pay you to produce the show for us. We'll own the show. We'll sell the show as we deem fit and we'll pay you X amount to produce it for us. So they started doing that and they were acquiring all these shows with these producers. They were branching out trying to do some of their own genre or some odd beat shows that ran somewhat, you know, with the outdoor block. What had happened is they overextended themselves with that. And when the economy turned south, then what happened, they had their sales teams going to ICAST and coming into our industry, which is basically a mom and pop industry, trying to sell these shows. And they couldn't do it because the industry stays with some of the stronger names, you know, that that keep those names going, the most recognizable names. So what had happened, they they had contracts with these people, you know, uh, multi-year in a lot of cases, so, they had to pay these producers to pay the shows, even though ESP was losing money. So, finally, the beat counters looked at this and We're upside down here with the outdoors. We need to get out from under this thing. And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And that's not the politically correct story that they gave. That story was they want to get back to the roots of live sports programming. Yeah. That was a facade. They had lost, they're losing their rear end because of that. Then, over uh, NBC Sports, they had a few shows that they were doing that too. and they jumped out of that completely and went to the time buys. Um, you know, kept with that because they saw what happened over there with ESPN. So that's what brought down those networks. If they just stayed, or ESPN in particular, if they just stayed with the time buy, they were probably still had a very you know rich and rewarding outdoors block now. Yeah, and then think then things change too. And I think a lot of cases, who ends up taking over the programming director, they may not be a fan of fishing or the outdoors, and uh, so they said we don't need this stuff. It's it's not a good look for us. Let's take up, like you said, women's soccer or professional bowling. Not that there's anything wrong with bowling. Yeah, but, you yeah, know I mean, that's, that's what happens.
2: That's that's kind of you know you go wherever, but they pick up these kind of off off you know off sports that people don't like, Australian rules football or something like that, which is which is interesting and maybe on a global market it has a bigger a bigger, uh, ratings than, than what fishing can pull in. Um, and then a hunting, you know, I, they, they used to have hunting on there too, but they wouldn't allow yes. kill shots. You know, they wouldn't, like. they would, they would get right to the kill shot. And then, then the next, the next shot would be the animal on the ground. And that spawned like the, uh, the Drury's, they, they, they were like, well, you know, our people want to see kill shots. So we're just going to put this out on DVD about the time that DVDs came out and created a whole industry of, of that because they wouldn't allow the kill shots on, on ESPN. It's interesting how you kind of tie all that stuff back together. Um, yeah. but then certain, certain networks would, would kind of allow the the kill shots or the gaff shots. I mean, I've, I'm sure you've had that, yeah. that like we had a spearfishing show, get, get, uh, axed off of, uh, NBC sports. They said, no, nah, that's, that's not, no. you're not, you're not doing <laughs> that. But, uh, but anyway, you know, that's back in the days where there were um, real gatekeepers. Like you said, even if you had the money and you were ready to do the time buy, you had to send them something and they looked at it and they're like, I don't know, this guy, you know, I don't think he's, I don't think we can, I don't think this is a good look here or whatever, for, sure. for whatever reason, any reason, no reason, they would just say no. And then you'd have to try again. But luckily, luckily it worked for, for both of us. You know, you were talking about Mark Sosin there and I just read this Really great book, and um, a book that you'll want to read too. And had this guy on the podcast the other ga- day. His name is Monty Burke, and he wrote this book called Lords of the Fly, and it's all about the fly fishing world record hunters when they were going to Homosassa and everything like that. But in this book, he he talks about so many other other things, and there's some history in there, and there was some history about Mark Sosen that I didn't have any idea about that that he had been almost solely responsible for making um fly records in the IGFA. Do you remember those days when he was working on that?
1: Oh yeah. He was a he was major league fly angler. Uh fly and then in light tackle. But he had a you know huge name, you know, and reputation with with the fly fishing end of it. And um, you know, he, he he pioneered just a lot of that stuff. He and Lefty Craig. Yeah. You know, those were the pioneers in fly fishing. And I don't fly fish and yeah, I tried it a couple of times. You it didn't move me, but that uh, they were the pioneers with that. And um, yeah, he was without a doubt. I mean, you, you look at the guys that came before us, Mark Soson's of the world, the lefty, lefty crate, uh, Bob McNally, Frank Sargent. These were the ultra heavyweights. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it would be like looking at the old heavyweight boxers, you know, Larry Holmes, George Foreman, Muhammad Ali, I mean, that's who these guys were. And these guys were larger than life themselves. And um, so naturally you aspire to be like they are. And, and, and a lot of that, uh, maybe work ethic wise, you know, bleeds off into like what you do or what I do. Right. And I was very fortunate with Mark who was the biggest name in saltwater fishing. Uh, and again, it related to mega owner tournaments. He was friends with Bill Monroe and he would go on the rider trips. And when I first met him, I know who he was, but Bill Monroe brought Mark to the boat to introduce him to me. And I, I, I like laugh and I said, this guy looks like Curly from the Three Stooges. <laughs> he had that haircut and everything. And he had pretty much almost the same bill. And to me, he was just a jovial, friendly guy. He took an instant liking to me. And we would sit and we would talk and, we became very, very tight. And um, so as I mentioned, we started the seminars. But when I started my writing career in 1983, coming aboard with Saltwater Sportsman, you know, he sat me down and he gave me an inside track that would, would later prove be so valuable. And basically how that went, he said, I'm going to tell you who the good guys are in this industry, the ones you can trust, and I'm going to tell you who the A whoop, are you know, the buttholes, I'll put it mm-hmm. that way, in this industry that you want to watch your back and don't have any strong dealings with. And he named names. And some of those on the other side of the fence uh, were some big-name people that you would think, whoa. And and so he guided me in a lot. It would be sort of like, here you are, get ready to start your first Indy 500. And you have Mary Andretti as your coach. That's how... I felt having him tell me how to write quality wise, who to trust and and how you deliver. And he always had, which I always had, you know, through my, my family, he says, you always deal with honesty, you put your best work forward and, you know, and your reputation is, is what's going to get you through there. And he told me, he said, I see people strive to become an editor of a publication like saltwater sportsman or i want to be the editor of outdoor life he says you do never ever ever want to accept an editor position at one of these magazines and i looked and said why he says because what happens the magazines get bought out they put their own people in and and then those editors are gone if you remain a strong independent your name will be your drawing card so whatever happens if magazines get bought out or whatever your name will be your business card that all these people in the industry will associate you by. And that's what you want to be a strong independent and not get locked down to where somebody at the wind could buy a magazine and clean house and you're gone. And at the time I didn't really understand what he was saying, but looking back, I said, he was so incredibly right. That was probably one of the best bits of advice is to just do your own thing and, and build your own reputation, your own name and your own business. So he had given me a lot. And then, um, you know, about 10 years of seminars, you know, we, we started going our own separate ways. And, and then we worked out a deal. He and I were equal partners with the seminar series. And, um, uh, I ended up buying his half out. And, um, and like I said, I continued on, you know, with that, that aspect of the business.
2: Interesting. And the advice that he gave you about who to, who to stay away from and who to trust, oh, yeah. did, did that remain? I mean, did oh, yeah. many, many oh, years yeah. later, did you go, you know what, somebody told me about that guy.
1: <laughs> and a hundred percent, and you just watched different instances in the whole bit, and absolutely, they they, they were some just incredibly valuable pointers and tips that he had, uh, you know, bestowed upon me. So um, it was really really remarkable because he, you know, he he was the kingpin back then. There's there's no doubt about it. He was the big guy. He had a uh, big saltwater show, which was a rarity to have a saltwater show back then. Yeah. You know, we I did several episodes early on with him. We did sail fishing once and I can't remember what year, but also, and I look at, at my boat, I'm fishing with him and I'm looking, I said, well, there's Mark, but who the heck is standing near him? I can't <laughs>
2: Some guy with dark hair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> really? And, and it was a beetle haircut too. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's funny. That's funny. Um, did you have other mentors besides, besides Mark that, that were oh, really yes. influential?
1: Absolutely. The saltwater sportsman team of Barry Gibson, and Rip Cunningham, and Spider oh, right.
2: and
1: Grayson. Uh, and particularly Barry Gibson, who was the editor. And he took a liking to me, too. And Barry Gibson was a very staunch, hardcore, New England-style editor. If you could write and get a piece in Saltwater Sportsman, and, and, and Barry to prove it, by it, you could write for any magazine in the world name any title that's how strict he ran he he, he wrote things like the king's english he was strict and he and i got a uh, good liking together and um got along so well that one of my things he would tell me all right george it's november turn into your george's christmas list so we could approve it and my christmas list every november was about eight or so places in the country and out of the country that I would travel to, go fish, and write the features for Saltwater Sportsman. It was the greatest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. It, it, you, the world was your map. We've been to Ecuador, Brazil, Marlin, fish, we, everywhere. And, that was- and I would turn it around would give you a stamp of approval. And, uh, but they were, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a rarity in that at Saltwater Sportsman, that team that you had, Barry Gibson, Rip Cunningham, Spider, and Drayson, they all had large family money. And they were all fishing addicts, so it wasn't like, well, I don't fish much, but I like it. But I'm going to be an editor. No, they were fishing people first and foremost that got into magazine business. And um, like I said, when you looked at the original members of Saltwater Sportsman, I was the only one who really needed a job in that group when they began to work for them. <laughs> and they were they were just really great, and uh, they built that magazine to you know what it is you know today. It's uh, so I had the honor of working under them and. And them, you know, taking me under their wing. And I remember when Barry Gibson called me. Their headquarters up in Boston. And uh, it was like 1982. He said, would you be interested in, in coming to work with Saltwater Sportsman? And I said, my jaw dropped. I said, where do I sign up? He said, well, we'll pay. Get your air. We are gonna. We want to fly you to Boston. want to have a meeting. We'll cover your air, your hotel, your, meal, your meals. Let's have a meeting. See where it goes. So I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to you know saltwater sportsman kingdom. this is it i had gone out and bought this three-piece suit and i mean from the shoes everything and i think it was sort of like back at the time it was i wouldn't say it's a burnt orange suit but it was that kind of almost like a brownish orange system okay i don't want to tell you what i spent on that suit but uh i i flew up there and i go to the meeting i walk in there and I see them all in there, and there's slacks, fishing shirts, and they looking at me up and down. So we sat down, we talked. They took me out to lunch the whole bit. So Barry calls me the next day. He said, "George, congratulations, you're on board." I said, "Fantastic! Oh my God!" He says, "You know, we like you because you, you're a, a strong saltwater angler. You're knowledgeable. You're a good guy." But Barry said, "In my book, you know what sold me to hire you?" I go, "What?" That suit. <laughs> Anybody that come up to this office wearing a suit like that definitely has to be a good guy. So he hires you. So that turned out to be one of my better investments to life with that stupid suit. <laughs> that's
2: funny. That's funny, man. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's back in the day where, where you know, you dressed you dressed for success. Like today, if you wore a three-piece suit to a, to an interview at a magazine, everybody's in there wearing shorts and, and t-shirts. They'd be like, who is this guy? Why would you? You, you, you miss the is. mark there, buddy.
1: It is. I remember mean, my earlier ICAST shows, I would go in with, with a suit like that yeah. until after a number of years, people started making fun of me. So I then started dressing down from that point.
2: Yeah, well, I, I did the same thing. I wore, I wore, I always dressed up at ICAST. I mean, my dad was a salesman. He's an insurance salesman and he always gave me good advice. You know, he's like, you know, you make the first impression, you you show people that you're there to, to do business. You don't, nobody wants sure. to talk to anybody in shorts and, uh, and, you know, you dress like one one grade higher than, than them. So if they're wearing a polo, you should wear like a button down. If they're wearing sport. A, a, a sport coat, you should wear a suit. And, and, you know, yeah. you're, you're one step, you're dressed one step higher than, but not, you, you know, if everybody's wearing shorts, you don't go in a tuxedo. And <laughs> you know, so there's like this, this fine line of kind of how to present yourself, but it's, it's changing all the time as the world oh, is becoming absolutely- much and much, much more casual and, uh, but there's still that same kind of thing. I still look to my dad's advice there and say, well, one step higher. So if they're in, in, in shorts and a t-shirt, then I need to be in nice shorts and a nice polo, you know, or something like that. Then
1: That's the way it was. And in fact, I think I even saved that suit. It's somewhere in the back of my closet. I can tell you for sure. I cannot fit into it anymore, but I think (laughs) I saved that just as a token. You know,
2: (laughs) That's funny. It's probably heavy polyester too.
1: (laughs) Oh, it is. You would sweat to death. You'd lose 20 pounds wearing that thing.
2: Yeah. That's so funny. Um, so you've been able to fish with so many different people, write about so many different people. One of the people that I know that you have a a tight connection with is, is, um, uh, Bouncer Smith, who I think oh, yeah. the world of, and uh, how did you guys meet? How did that happen that you guys started hanging out and becoming friends?
1: I had met him before I accepted the position to run the greater Miami billfish tournament. And I'm trying to think exactly where it might've been at a fishing club meeting or whatever. And uh, then he invited me to go fishing with him. And then he and I worked together. He was on the board, of the greater Miami billfish tournament. And he was one of the guys that sided with the conservation aspect that we really do need to go release. So he he was one of the guys I did have in my corner and, um, you know, he he and I just, you know, formed this bond and he was, um, you know, all these years, just remarkable what he had done as far as a charter captain. And I say this and I probably get myself in hot water with a lot of the other Miami captains, but as far as charter captains go in the Miami area, he was going to leak totally unto himself. Uh, Here's a guy. That was amazing in catching sea trout in Miami's Biscayne Bay. Uh, tarpon, fewer better than, than Bouncer in the Miami area. Snook is an amazing inlet, amazing reef person, amazing offshore live baiter, and daytime swordfish. He covered every single aspect of saltwater fishing where some captain specialize in something. That's your strong suit. Bouncer specializes in every single thing that swims in Miami. And he was very, intelligent early on with his career and that he befriended a lot of the outdoor writers. And he would, uh, back then it was Jim Hardy with the Miami Herald and uh, Sue Cocking came aboard Steve Waters with Sun Sentinel, uh, Chris Dummett at the Palm beach post and later Willie Howard, Jan folk. So what he would do, he would have an open invitation. We'd call, come on down the mackerel running. Come on. It's a good selfish bite. Come on. Let's get some tarpon. He would always bring these newspaper writers and these magazine writers in for a full day of fishing with him, absolutely no charge, show him a great time. And he had built up such a press friendly relationship that transcended all these major magazines where people would write about or mention him to where he became basically a household name. And it was so smart by him just fishing with press people and hooking up and doing some television shows. He was very press savvy, and he created the Bouncer Smith uh, aura uh, that that he enjoys right now. And and on top of it, he was an excellent angler too. But he was very people friendly, and so he was he had the smart business plan. Didn't cost him anything but a day of fishing out on the boat. But what he got in return with stories or or television episodes paid a hundredfold. Yeah. on what his initial time and in fuel investment was. So really just an incredible, you know, bank of knowledge.
2: Yeah. He's a, he's got a good heart too. You know, you, Oh,
1: no, no doubt about it.
2: He's he's just a, a nice, I don't know. It's a sweetheart of a guy. That's what I hear people say that about him all the time. Like, Oh, bouncer, he's a sweetheart of a guy. Like he just has a good heart. He's he's just a nice guy from all my dealings with him. And I, I haven't had a tremendous amount of dealings with him, but I, I did get a chance to go to, him and get his whole story like he started from from being a a kid and and like all you're talking about like the trout fishing and the snook fishing and you know he used to ride his bicycle down to the seawalls and do all that Mm -hmm. stuff and and uh you know he would walk along and kind of troll back and forth by walking along the the seawalls and find all this stuff but it was he's fascinating i really really thought um thought highly of him or still do um I just saw that he retired, I guess, from...
1: Uh, from he, he did. What, what an incredible legacy. 50-some-odd years in a charter business. And to give you an idea how just strong of a guy he really is, you got to remember in his heyday until about a year ago, you know, he'd run three trips a day. I know. You know, he would he, he would run the night tarping trips on top of it all, get ready the next morning to either do a half day or a full day and do tarp. He was just almost a 24-7 machine. And he had... He, he, anybody that wanted to run at his level, he would burn him right out. Right. And uh, and I was surprised that A.B. Raymond, who was his captain mate in, in, in those l- later years here, I always said that anybody who could be a mate and work with bouncer who could hang in there is going to learn so much as far as spots and techniques. And, and bouncer's hard. I mean, he runs the boat, he, it's bouncer's way. And, and he'll let you know it too. <laughs> So, um, you know, it, you know, he did chew out a few mates, you know, uh, that couldn't hang with him, but AB did. And AB had since gone out on his own as a charter captain, but the amount of knowledge that he acquired through those years of working with bouncer really has to be immense. Yeah. And, um, but he's, your know, bouncer definitely has his own ways of doing things. And, you know, that, that we have some funny bouncer stories there too, you know, based on that and. And I could do some things to him because we're friends that uh, I could tease him and he lets me get away with it. Whereas other people he probably wouldn't let get away with it. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. I bet. I bet there's some great stories there.
0: Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top of the line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out midwayusa.com. Um
2: so the daytime sword fishing, did you did were you kind of on the forefront of that?
1: No, not on the daytime stuff. I did a, a, a good amount of the nighttime stuff which was you know basically how they were doing it originally here, and then they started doing a daytime deal. So I come up on that one like a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. And then uh, having done that, you know, you don't go night fish anymore for them because it's so much more, in my opinion, rewarding to be able to see this fish leaping and jumping into the air, going back down, but having a look at it when it's 50, 60, somewhat feet deep and see those iridescent purples you know, those blues of this fish actually up. You just, it's different at night, but what you really miss seeing the um you know, at night versus the daytime. It's incredible. What a, what a world of difference. What a so, world of,
2: of difference in the, in just the whole production of the whole thing. Like the first time I ever went nighttime sword fishing was with Kenny Harris in Key West. And he takes me and it's during tarpon season and I'm dog tired because I'm fishing every single day. And then he's, he's like, you gotta go nighttime sword fishing with me. So, uh, you know, you're getting up at four <laughs> in the morning anyway. So I'm like, okay, I'll go meet me at 10. I'm like, God, okay. 10. And I didn't recover from this trip for three weeks and we didn't catch anything, but he was using, <laughs> using those giant lights and he had the whole oh, yeah. thing all rigged up. But I mean, I went that one time at, at literally the worst time. I think I had babies at home that weren't sleeping well and I'm tarpon fishing, but I'm like, Kenny Harris just asked me to go sword fishing. So I guess I should go. And my wife's like, I don't, yeah, you, know, you hadn't slept in. Week, you know, like, but <laughs> I felt I felt terrible after that trip. But the daytime thing, I'm way more of a fan of the daytime now. It's amazing, yeah.
1: It, it, it's just amazing, you know, what an animal. And I think pound for pound, without a doubt, that's that's the strongest fighting fish out there. And I've caught an amazing amount of fish and, and big ones, you know, throughout my career. And uh, until that, I was I was my boat was with the big eye tuna. <laughs> And I caught my largest big eye that i caught it was during a show up in Maryland. Was a 215 pound big eye that I fought in a 50 stand up. And compared to a yellowfin, and especially compared to a bluefin, those big eyes don't give up. They they fight till you bring that fish to gaff. And those have been some of the hardest fights that I've had. Uh, swordfish. Uh, would outdo that pound for pound because the swordfish is just an amazing animal that could charge all the way deep, come back up. It's not bothered by anything. And it's an intelligent fish in that compared to a sailfish or a blue marlin it's out there jumping, the swordfish realizes it's in trouble and a lot of times wants to seek out what's causing his trouble and could become violent by running out a boat. It's, I, a, it's an know.
2: intelligent fish. I know. And and I noticed something when I was doing a little research on you, that you had a cameraman attacked by a swordfish, and we did too. Yes. I mean, it, it was really, really close. Uh, we had the camera on mounted on a, a a scooter that pulls the diver along, right? So it's got a big hard plastic cone on it and the bill of that thing pierced that hard plastic cone went in about eight inches and then broke off but we have the video of it and this fish is swimming along and it sees the diver and turns and absolutely was not like any sort of a accidental thing this was an absolute attack and uh was scary i mean if that bill if it hadn't hit that scooter it would have gone right through his chest so the same kind of thing happened to your, your diver, The same right?
1: exact thing. And fortunately, what saved our guy, Kevin Tierney, was that he's highly experienced underwater with, with the billfish. And the, the fish tried to get him three times. And we had really brought this fish up alongside the boat on the leader, and they filmed it about 170-pound fish. And he said, I'm going in the water. I want to get some underwater. So or, Kevin, be careful. It's a swordfish. So... Fish runs off a bunch of line. He finally gets in the water and he's down there filming it. And the fish makes a big circle. I'm cranking it back up to the leader. It noticed him out there and it started charging. And I'm screaming, Kevin, I couldn't stop the fish. It runs right up, probably 10 feet in front of him, hangs a 90 degree angle to the right, dives deep. And I'm screaming at Kevin, get out of the water. He's trying to attack me. So Kevin's backpedaling to get to the camera boat. I fight the sword back up alongside the boat. It looks at him again out there, and it charges. And at this point, I can't stop the fish. I put all the drag pressure I could. And it was screaming, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. And next thing I see is Kevin bounce up about a half a foot and splash back in the water. Oh, my God, he got hit. Are you all right? And he says, yeah, he don't like me. (laughs) And I said, get out of the water. And by the time, the fish did the same thing, got him alongside the boat again and charged him a third time. This time, the camera... A boat operator salt was going on. grabbed Kevin by his shoulders, lifting him up onto the gunnels. The swordfish goes under the camera boat at him again. We finally bring the fish back up, get him on the leader, and and then clip it free. But what Kevin said happened to him, and he had the video and the still shot to prove it. The fish was coming at him, and he was taught that when you're in the water suspended and a billfish comes at you, do a back float because it puts it presents a smaller target. If you're straight up and down that fish could hit you anywhere. You're not slowing it or changing its momentum. But if you do a back float, the fish would have to stop, go up 90 degrees to try to hit you. Now, how he had the nerve to do that is beyond me. He watched the fish come in and the fish actually, with his video, what he's doing to backflip, the dorsal fin goes between his crotch. And when Kevin was lifted in the air, that was the back of the swordfish going under him, that lifting him up and dropped him back on the water. Hmm. And he has videos of this. Which was, you know, uh, amazing. I think the only guy in the world that has a video of a swordfish going through his crotch. And since then, Kevin he talks like Barry Gibb at Bee Gees. You know that high <laughs> pitch voice. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> that's uh man. I, I we don't do that anymore. Anything anything else with the uh, swordfish? The nobody swordfish goes now. in the water. It's uh GoPro at, at on a stick. You know that's it. I mean that thing. It really it really kind of scared me, and we were in Louisiana, so we were far, we were far away from uh, you know our normal hospitals, you know far away from the families, far away from everything. And I just started thinking, man, if that fish had hit him, that could have been really, really bad. And then when I look yeah. at the video, it, it is an absolute full-on attack. It's not like like you're talking about. I mean it, your fish went after him three times. So then there's another story about you getting pulled in a sword yes. fish <laughs> yeah how did that happen
1: i, 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 I call that my don't go over the wall in the daytona 500 <laughs> <laughs> and uh that was part of this whole crazy weekend okay that that happened to me first and um you know what had happened i was we were fishing with nick stanzik doing the show we run up to a spot we drop down and we hook up with a sword Immediately and fight this, and we get this fish near the boat, probably bottom for about an hour. Beautiful fish. I'm looking at their 250, 300. So, what a remarkable fish for the show! And the hook pulls. We go back on that spot. No sooner did they hit bottom, get me hook up again, fight another fish for an hour, maybe a little bit over. Get the fish a little bit farther out, but we could see it. Another beautiful fish. We pull the hook. So, man, we're just snake bitten. It's just bad. We go and we do it a third time. We hook up. Now, I'm fighting this fish for. Two hours. Okay, now keep in mind this is like almost constant fighting. And we're finally getting the fish somewhat close to where we think we're gonna beat it. And I'm standing by my outboards facing out. And my buddy Carl was running his boat as the camera as our camera crew on. I see Carl coming around the outboards with the fish angle in that direction. I go, Carl, what are you what are you doing? He said, the camera crew, they don't want to see your butts. They said, We gotta get in front of you. I said, Carl, we've had bad luck. We pulled the hooks on two swords that angle you're going to cut the fish off said, so back up go around the bow of my boat come in that way the sun will be at your back and the fish is nowhere near there you can get all the footage you need i said we're already having bad luck so he backs out and he, he goes idling around and the last thing that i remember seeing at a corner of my eye was his boat coming around the bow of my boat as he was going to try to get position i go to crank down i feel his wake and it wasn't a bad wake lapped the side of my boat but it just so happened as i was going down to take a crank the weight lapped on my boat bounced it my feet went up and next thing you know i catapulted in the water with the swordfish and i'm going down and i remember since i always had an escape route i'm a small boat guy I big game fish and i knew that sooner or later with your stand-up gear There's going to be a chance you're going to go overboard. So how do you survive it? And I had these three things in my mind uh, play out. The first thing is when you hit the water, slowly back to drag off on the reel, to alleviate the pressure because some people will freak and not do anything. That sword will pull you down or they freak and they go into free school and create a big bird's nest, which locks it up and you still go down. That was number one. I did that. And when I did that, the pressure came off and it came back to the top. The second part of the escape route was to grab the rod, pull to my chest and unclip and swim out of the harness. That's where something went wrong. I'm doing it. I can't feel the rod, but I know I'm stuck to it. You know, I know I'm free Spooled it a, a good bit. And I said, I got to figure out what's going on. So I grabbed the side of my boat and Nick Stanzik's grabbing me by my shirt and I'm slapping his hand off me because if I go down, Nick Stanzik is 80 pounds soaking wet. If I go down, I'm going to take him with, with me and I'm not going to drown the kid. So, I, I was thinking to myself, I got one shot here. I have to take a breath, find out what's going on with this rod, and I got to get out of it. Fortunately, Kevin saw what was happening. He jumps off the camera boat, swims over to me. When I had flipped over, the rod somehow twisted around with the 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 uh the rod itself going between my legs, and I'm out there trying to grab it. I, I can't get to it. Kevin gets in there, gets a hand, unclips me. We put the rod back into the boat and I get back in the boat, to fight the fish. But the third part of the escape plan wouldn't work was to grab your pliers and cut the line. But the pliers were underneath the big stand up harness that I had. And I'll circle back here in a, in a second. But I got back up in the boat and I said, Nick, push that drag down. Is this fish still here? And the fish was still there. <laughs> so I get back up, get in the harness again, uh, beat beyond comparison and fatigue. Fought the fish another half hour and we'll get alongside the boat. Nick says, you want me to fly gap it? Or you want me to dart it? I said, kill this thing the fastest way you know how, because I don't know how much I've got left me. And he did. And we brought in, and it was a 256 pound swordfish that we were so far out and we just boated the fish. It had gone dark. And we had that like a 40 some mile run in the dark, the Bud Marys. I remember pulling in, it was 10 o'clock. We're weighing the fish. Richard Stance, it comes in. It was like a surreal moment to it all. But, what got me in trouble was it was when we were sword fishing and Nick said, you want to put your safety harness on from your reel down to your boat. I said, now that, that you know, in case you got overboard, like I did, somebody can pull you in. So now we, we don't need that. He said, you know what I'm saying? So we're pros. We're, we're, we're fine. We, we don't really need that. And in my mind, and I put this in the show was that, you know, accidents always happen to the other guy, so we don't need it. And, but that day, I was the accident. So number one, you always put that safety cord on that rod and reel in case it ever happens again. You keep those cutters on the outside of any harness that you have to get through them fast. So we certainly uh, you know, learned a valuable lesson on, on that one. But it was uh, definitely an experience, and I don't care how experienced you are out there. When I hit the water for the first time, it was the freakiest feeling ever. You just hear, you see bubbles. And the first thing that went through my mind so this is how I'm going to die. Because you remember back to those Marlin stories, mates getting the wire wrapped around their hands. And, and, uh, and I said, no, I'm not. I said, think back to those three escape mechanisms. And mm. then I did what I did. And so um, we got lucky. And our other camera guy filmed it all. And I said, "That's great. Right. I'm sitting there getting ready to drown in your film." And he said, "Well, he said I figured your wife would like that for the life insurance you actually died." <laughs> <laughs> well, so it was an amazing experience.
2: Man, that's 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 really crazy. Um, but it seems like it seems like the people that have the most experience, when they get in, get themselves in trouble, it's something that's very, very, very kind of a regular occurrence. Like it's not just some crazy extreme thing like i've heard of of people that you know surfers that have surfed all these giant waves and they get themselves in trouble they hit their head on on some little wave that they're trying to teach their kid how to surf or you know like like your your deal like it probably wasn't the roughest day you've ever been out there probably wasn't the most dangerous day and something like that happens it happens when you least expect it and it happens you know it's kind of trivial like it it was a small boat wake and and you it just happened at exactly the right second to make you you know lose your footing, and then all of a sudden you've got tremendous pressure from the sailfish, so you're going you're going in um but I don't know, that's what we all have to work watch out for is it's like it's not like you're gonna you know get struck by lightning or something. It's probably something very, very trivial on a place that you've been hundreds of times before. Like those are the things that yeah. that the experienced boater and the experienced fisherman has to watch out for. The things mm-hmm. that that oh, it wouldn't happen here. I've done this thousands of times. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and, and and I was angry at myself. And people said, "Man, you almost checked out, left the building, whatever." So, no, I didn't. I was so angry with myself for letting that happen. And I said I was no any 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 danger, and I was angry with myself for well over a year for for letting that happen. And uh, and. You know, people tell me, my camera crew, you know, finally after about a year, it started to settle in. I'd look back at the video and then i talked to Kevin and said, man, yeah, you know, I think maybe I was a little closer to trouble than I actually thought I was. I said, I've been angry at myself for letting it happen. And he says, no. He said, you realize, I said, you were able to back the drag off, but the way that rod got twisted around, what if that braid wrapped around the rod tip or it wrapped around your foot? You were going down. And I started thinking about that. He says, yeah, that's pretty you think about that, what all that happened at the break and go around the rod tip or around my my shoe or my foot. And you realize what could have happened to you that day. And when I had first gone overboard, I was going down because of pressure of fish going down. So it was, um, you know, it, it, now I look back and said, yeah, maybe a little bit closer to leaving the building than I actually thought.
2: Yeah. Did you did that change anything for you after anything?
1: I I, I went back to, you know, being smart about this. And, and, and when we hook up to... Um, you know, a swordfish, and it was in the, in the last swordfish show we did, you, you've got the big stand-up harness. I've got a big uh, uh cable-type restraint that goes on the back of that harness to a part of the boat that's not going to come apart if you go overboard. So if that ever happens, somebody could grab that if you're in any kind of trouble and pull you in. So you went back to the normal safety deals that you had foregone when you when I first did that for the for lack of it looking cool. And then, um, so yeah, you just put common sense back in the game which you knew but you put on the sideline and it seems like when you put that common sense on the sideline that's when you get bitten you know
2: yeah well listen man i'm glad that uh, i'm glad you made it out <laughs> of that one and probably lots of other ones you're uh, you're a legend in the television business and i really appreciate you spending a lot of time with us today and and telling us some stories certainly that i've never heard before um and i think that a lot of a lot of your fans probably haven't heard a lot of these stories so it'll be very entertaining for them. Uh, as it was for me. But uh, thanks, George. I really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you. I mean, I could sit here all day and just do this with yeah, you. We'll, you
2: we'll, do, it, with we'll, it we'll you, do it again. We'll do it again. You're obviously really good at it. Got a lot of stories and uh, and certainly uh, we, we will do it again. Um, but if people want to watch your show, go to your seminars, follow you on social media, how would people connect with you?
1: They could go to my website, which is georgepovoramo.com. And we have our television schedule up there. A lot of how-to features and articles. Uh, they could follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram at George Povaromo, and then of course Facebook. Uh, I'm there as well. But uh, the website will definitely take them a lot of different places. And um, and they could also watch if, if they missed our season so far. Go to YouTube at George Povaromo TV and catch your episodes uh, anytime they want 4K uh, broadcast uh, quality so uh that's where they could find me and you, you certainly know where you could find me and i can't thank you enough for inviting me i mean you know you're a big legend out there too and um it's amazing what what you accomplished and how you you've upheld the sport with a, a gentleman-like approach which i i definitely respect because you you do it the a good old-fashioned way you're out there you're fishing you're teaching fishing you, you don't have any special stunts that you need to sort of bolster up your show mm-hmm. you're a hardcore angler and you do it the right way so yeah, utmost respect for you too. And I appreciate you having me on board.
2: Well, I appreciate it. And I, I feel very similar to you in that, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Lots of people, you know, came before us and paved the road for the television world that we find ourselves in. And, and even the seminar world, everything. I mean, there were, there were true giants that, uh, that came before and, uh, really, did, did most of the hard work, but uh, luckily, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. And um, you guys, if you want to follow uh, George, he has taught hundreds of thousands of people how to saltwater fish better. And um, through his seminars and television shows, uh, I think hundreds of thousands is probably a, a far understatement, right? Because uh, he just told us he had 500,000 people watch one of his shows. So millions, millions of people. To fish better, but anyway, George, great! It was fine. It was really fun to uh, get these stories from you, and I very much enjoyed it. Uh, stay tuned, guys. We got a big week coming up, and uh, we'll have more great guests just like George Poveromo. So stay tuned, and we'll see you next week.
0: A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6'8 Western. I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.
1: Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night, floats a duck camp alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking.